This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Support for MPB comes from Trustmark, offering My Trustmark online and mobile banking services to help monitor spending, pay bills, deposit checks, transfer money, and more. Anytime, anywhere. More information at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. Nancy and Ryder are both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. How does the U.S. Census affect your personal finances? Census data determines where more than $675 billion in federal funds are distributed across America. Time is running out. However, September will be the last month to get counted for the 2020 National Census. Our guest is from the Center for Population Studies today. It's Professor John Green and our financial experts from New Perspectives. They're all ready to take your questions. Contact us by email. Our address is money at mpbonline.org. So good morning, Nancy. Hope that you're doing well. What uh, financial news uh, caught your interest in this past week? Well, I was glad to see that uh, Governor Reeves opted in on the expanded unemployment benefits being offered by the president. Um, this will be an extra $300 per week to those on unemployment. Now, we don't know when this will start back up or how it will start. We also know that the governor has said, no, Mississippi will not kick in another $100. But there will be some relief, and we also expect that relief to be short-term, probably five to six weeks. But something is coming. Uh, Ryder, how about you? What uh, caught your interest this week? Uh, well, uh, t- today, uh, my thoughts have been with folks on the coast, um, and, you know, with two hurricanes coming towards them, uh, you know, especially on this, uh, the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Um, and so I know we've done a lot of programs on this before, kind of preparing for and how to deal with, you know, post-disaster. And I know the day of, the day before maybe is a little late warning, but of course, you know, if you have not already, you know, um, stock up on the essentials. Um, we've recommended before that folks uh, do have cash checks and an ID uh, with them just in case. And of course, when you're talking about um, damage to your home, damage to your property, making sure that you have kind of documented, uh, you know, if you do have damage, you know, in the next few days, make sure you document that well. And of course, in preparation for that, knowing where your important documents are, um, you know, and, and, and hopefully having an online copy of a lot of that sort of stuff, knowing where your important documents are uh, is going to be very important. That's correct. Uh, Laura is now a hurricane, I believe, and it's in the Gulf of Mexico. The projected path would give Mississippians a bit of relief in that we would not be in the direct path of the hurricane. That's uh, right. That's subject to change A and B, uh, as I heard pointed out this morning. Uh, just because it's you're not in a direct hit does not mean that you won't receive some adverse effects uh, weather-wise from that. So folks along the Gulf Coast and in South Mississippi uh, prepare. Also, I saw one track that had it uh, after making landfall sort of bending back uh, to the east, and so that uh, possibly uh, even northwest Mississippi uh, might be under the gun for some severe weather later in the week. So all Mississippians, I think, just need to pay attention to where that's going, uh, be ready if necessary, and hopefully, uh, you know, we won't uh, we won't suffer uh, too much damage uh, from this second uh, storm that's uh, come into the Gulf here in this uh, in this week. 
So our guest for our show today is Dr. John Green. He's professor with the Department of Sociology and Anthropology and a senior research associate with the Center for Population Studies at the University of Mississippi. Dr. Green, welcome and thanks for taking time to talk to us. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Uh, tell us how the response to filling out the census or getting counted is going in Mississippi. Are we doing well compared to other states? Well, we're doing better than some, but certainly not as, as high a participation rate as is needed. Um, we've, we've been hovering around uh, 40th place uh, for, for quite some time, although we had started out really strong in Mississippi before the pandemic. And so we, we certainly know that people are interested in the census, but uh, there, there seem to be a lot of barriers and, and challenges. And, uh, and right now we're at about 58.6% uh, self-response rate. Uh, and that means people who've responded either online or, or via telephone or, or via mail. Um, and then the, the enumerators are out trying to get those people who aren't self-responding. So you said there are some barriers. So what are some of the reasons that folks um, maybe not have gotten around to uh, providing the Census Bureau with that information as yet? Well, every time that the census is done, you know, every 10 years, certainly there's a, a set of different challenges related to, you know, whether or not people trust in, in the system and, and have concerns over privacy and those sort of things, uh, being unaware of the census so that it's taking place and, and what the importance of it is. Uh, but then, of course, uh, this year we have additional challenges. The pandemic, which I mentioned, um, also, as, as was talked about at the start of the show, with, with the hurricane, you know, we're concerned with, uh, you know, with troubling weather, weather at the same time that, that we have to uh, complete the census by the end of September. Uh, and then also, this is the first census where a majority of people have the opportunity to participate online, which is, a, which is a great advancement in the census. But, of course, not everyone has access to broadband Internet. Those people can still participate, um, but it's just, you know, not as easy as, as getting online. And so those are some of the concerns that we have. The final one that I'll mention is, is people who maybe have lived in multiple locations, um, you know, people who, uh, because of, you know, financial challenges or family upsets, that sort of thing, uh, kind of it's easier to fall through the cracks. And so, uh, and so that's, a, that's a group that we're always concerned about as well. Um, I failed out uh, the thing early on when I got, uh, I think I can't remember if I got something in the mail and went to the website. Uh, and it's really, I guess, uh, Dr. Green, a very simple procedure when you do get in touch with the Census Bureau. It takes, what, maybe... 10, 15 minutes at most to, to provide the information they're looking for? Absolutely. It's a, it's a fairly short questionnaire. You know, it asks questions about age and how many people live in the residence and, and their relationships to each other, those sort of questions that are kind of core uh, demographic data. And it can be completed online. Um, it can be completed in multiple languages. People can also respond via telephone and uh, as well as uh, via mail questionnaire. Now, with the remaining time that we have between now and September 30th, the real push is for online or telephone self-completion. And, and then, of course, for those who don't, to, to please respond to the self-enumerators. But as you mentioned, it's a very short uh, process. Uh, what is the number that someone would use to call to get their information counted? Yeah, it's a, the number is one 844 330 2020. 
That's 844-330-2020. So the last part certainly easy to remember. It's a, that's the year that we're in. Uh, so 132 federal programs used Census Bureau data to distribute more than $675 billion in funds during fiscal year 2015, according to the Census website. I'm, am I correct in thinking that the Census Bureau doesn't really have a hand in distributing the federal funds? That's done by other government agencies. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's actually a pretty strict um, wall between what the Census Bureau does and the other agencies. But the Census Bureau's real focus is on providing data uh, to those agencies so that they can make decisions about eligibility for, for funds for a variety of programs, and then allocating those funds, how they're allocated in terms of grants, direct payments, loans, loan guarantees, and then also the data are used for assessing performance. And so many of the the programs are important to our quality of life at the you know local and state, obviously national level, are are informed uh, by the utilization of census data, and many of those are are required by law that census data or other what we call official data sources, census related products that have to be used. So we mentioned 132 federal programs used Census Bureau data in 2015. Uh, not going through the whole list, but could you give us maybe just a sampling of some of the different federal agencies that do use uh, Census Bureau information to make decisions? Absolutely. And, and, and as you alluded to, it's a pretty could be a pretty exhaustive list, but a few that people might be most familiar with and concerned about, obviously in the time of the pandemic, uh, Health and Human Services, uh, makes great use of, of census data. Also, Department of Transportation, uh, Energy, Environmental Protection, uh, Agriculture, and, and within agriculture, a lot of our food assistance programs that are run through the Department of Agriculture, and then also educational programs. So those are just a few examples uh, that are used. I, I should also mention uh, urban, uh, sorry, housing and urban development and rural development as uh, you know, all kinds of housing-related uh, funding that is based on census data. So it's safe to say that, uh, again, decisions these federal programs make using Census Bureau information really affect all of us. Absolutely. In terms of what funds will be uh, uh, allocated, uh, what communities, what states, uh, you know, Mississippi, for example, a lot of our, our counties uh, running different programs, what funds will be available, and, uh, and then how those funds will be allocated are largely determined by census participation rates. Well, I should say the numbers that come for those participation rates. And so we want as accurate of data as possible so that Mississippians are, are able to benefit from those programs. Let's uh, get a call in before our first break, and we say good morning to uh, Sue, who's called in from uh, Beaumont this morning. You're on the air with us, Sue. Go ahead. Good morning. I'd like to ask your guest. Uh, I had a cold call yesterday. A woman just called up and uh, said, uh, answered the phone, and she said, I want to ask you some questions. I'm from the Census Bureau. And I get, you know, there's so many scams on, on phone calls now, these telephone scams. Uh, I, I said, well, I, I can't answer that. I, I would rather have a representative come to the house and show me some ID. Do you think that's wrong? I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a good idea just to cold call people and say, I need some information, because it could be anybody wanting to know your personal information. Good question, Sue. Dr. Green, what, uh, what can you say to Sue on that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, you can, if you do get called by the Census Bureau, 
Um, it could certainly be legitimate. The Census Bureau is doing mailings, doing calls, as well as the face-to-face -face enumerators, but it's certainly appropriate to uh, ask for more information. Um, you can, uh, but you can also request an enumerator um, and, and that would be appropriate. Also, I should mention that, uh, that the Census uh, Bureau has a, a specialist that you can contact and you can, you can say, uh, if someone calls, I'd be happy to participate, but I'm going to call the census directly. And you could use that number that we reported earlier, the 844-330-2020, and that would be appropriate as well. Well, thank you so much. Good call, Sue. Thanks for that. If you have a question for our experts, send an email to money at mpbonline.org. We're going to continue our discussion of the U.S. Census with Dr. John Green after the break. Here's a little census quiz for you. What state's the most densely populated, Maryland, California, or New Jersey? We'll have that for you next. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. Information presented on Money Talks is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult a financial advisor or any other qualified professional for guidance about your personal finance questions. Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Our website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past Money Talks broadcasts. You can also download the MPB Public Media app and listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lottridge Anderson, President of New Perspectives and Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. Before the break, we had a census quiz asking which state is the most densely populated, Maryland, California, or New Jersey. Let's let our hosts play along. Nancy, which do you think it is, Maryland, California, New Jersey? I'm going to guess New Jersey. All right. Ryder, what's your guess? Ooh, um, I mean, I know California is the most populous, but it's also very big. So um, to be different from Nancy, I'll go with Maryland. 
You should have stuck with your boss because New Jersey is the most densely populated state with 1,196 people per square mile. So uh, we've got another quiz coming up, Ryder. So you, I'll give you first shot next time, and maybe you can redeem yourself. I wonder. I wonder if she was tipped off. I'm getting something suspicious. Uh, you know, it pays to do your homework and look ahead. <laughs> Our guest today is John Green, Ph.D. and professor at the University of Mississippi with the Center for Population Studies, and we're talking how the census affects your personal finances. If you've not been counted yet to save a worker from coming to your door, why don't you give the census people a call? We've mentioned the number a couple of times, and we'll give it to you again. It's 1-844-330-2020. Our producer, Liz Gill, downloaded from the census website a list of federal programs that use census data. Uh, Dr. Green, we talked about this in general terms, but let's kind of drill down and talk specifically about some of the uh, programs uh, that distribute assistance uh, assistance based on census data. There's a number of medical programs. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about those that might be interesting to folks who are listening? Yeah, I think the the medical side is so critical. You know, we've been talking about the uh, pandemic and then also concerns about the hurricane and other challenges with flu season coming up. Uh, All remind us about the importance of our healthcare infrastructure and census data are are used uh, to inform a lot of the funding and planning uh, for healthcare. Uh, Medicaid and Medicare are, are two of the big biggest programs uh, that are funded based on uh, census counts. Uh, also, there's a variety of different block grants that, that come in uh, to states to address uh, issues related to community health and mental health. Um, I think, uh, you know, as, as, as you get a little deeper into these that, that really affect our Mississippi communities too that I would highlight, uh, our federally qualified community health centers community health center movement uh, started in Mississippi. Now we're served by community health centers across the state and uh, their their federal funding is largely uh, allocated on the basis of census data as are uh, funding opportunities for critical access hospitals. And, uh, and we could think of, of the, you know, the importance of that infrastructure being, at least in terms of federal dollars coming in, uh, done on the basis of census data. If you have a question while listening to our conversation about census numbers or if you have a personal finance question this morning, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Another area that uh, Mississippians are concerned about, that's roads and infrastructure. So how about some federal funds for our community distributed by the census numbers that deal with, with our infrastructure? Yeah, the infrastructure is is a critical part. And I should mention that through our Center for Population Studies, we house what's called the State Data Center of Mississippi and work to uh, help Mississippians who are trying to use public data to inform their work. We fill data requests for uh, planning and grant applications and that sort of thing, probably around infrastructure the most, uh, especially around uh, highway planning. You can think about different construction programs. Um, all types of things related to kind of road uh, safety. Uh, and then something that, I, that, that is very important going back to, uh, to health as well is water and wastewater disposal systems. And uh, these aren't just in terms of, you know, say direct funds that are provided, but also uh, uh, grants, uh, loans and loan guarantees uh, that have to use census data in making those decisions. And then, of course, uh, other other topics like fire, uh, 
control, fire services, and uh, and water pollution. And uh, the, the list is, is pretty long. And to understand that eligibility for a lot of the grant programs for our infrastructure uh, locally uh, and within the state is, is based on those census numbers. And sometimes it's not just the number of people, but the need that we can demonstrate through those census data for those places, um, you know, for so if you think about the impact, say that uh, the infrastructure development might have on a more isolated community or on a high poverty community, that uh, that those data are really critical to inform eligibility for those programs. And one thing that I guess we didn't mention that I, th I think some people might know about, but not everyone is, the, uh, that again underscores the importance of why we would want everybody who could possibly to respond and give their information to the Census Bureau is that, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're kind of stuck with these numbers until the next census 10 years down the road. There's not anything between them that updates these numbers, is there? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the decennial census, as, as, as in the name implies, is every 10 years. There are some other official data sources through the Census Bureau that are used to provide updates. Uh, we have what's called uh, the Population Estimates Program, where we use uh, census data as the base and then uh, other data like vital records on births and deaths and, and migration data are used to update those estimates. And then there's a survey program called the American Community Survey that the Census Bureau also conducts which provides more detailed information when you think about like, housing characteristics and education and poverty and disability, those types of topics come through the American Community Survey. But what's essential is that the decennial census serves as the basis by which all of those other data are compared and that are, that are used. Uh, and so although we do have updates, um, for, for many of these, especially as it relates to our representation within government, are based on the decennial census data. Uh, Nancy and Ryder have been listening along to our conversation. Let's uh, give them an opportunity to jump in. Ryder, uh, questions, comments uh, so far in our discussion? Um, no, I, I mean, I, th I think I think he's done a good job of kind of highlighting some very specific things, but also just think generally, you know, um, it, it's not just, you know, allocating federal dollars saying, okay, look, well, we have a million more people here. We obviously need some more infrastructure and whatnot. Um, and, and a lot of that may have been happening already. But also, you know, just like he mentioned, the amount of data that they have, and especially from the American Community Surveys, um, the the amount of data that they get and how even private businesses can study you know oh well you know this area has is is becoming um, more educated or less educated you know they may need our services oh this will be a good place to expand um, so you know having accurate information is not only important for allocating strict pots of money from the federal government but it's also very important for for private businesses when they're thinking of um, locating in a place when they're thinking of uh, recruiting in a place uh, when they're thinking of uh, expanding to a different location it's very important because it's the census puts out very good data they they have a lot of it <clears throat> excuse me uh, Nancy, this is a personal finance show. Uh, maybe use some thoughts on how the information that we've been talking about, the Census Bureau, the data they collect, how does it boil down to us on, on a personal level as we lead our everyday lives? 
Well, I think about the bulk of the money that we get, it goes into our education system. And that's critical for all of us, you know, families raising children. We need an educated workforce uh, in order to attract businesses and maintain those businesses here. So that becomes critical. My question for um, Dr. Green is, you know, in Mississippi, we have so many people living in rural areas, hard to get areas, uh, low income areas. I know we have these enumerators, these people who go out, but how much effort goes into and and are we really sure we're counting everybody, um, especially in these areas that you know don't often see a lot of visitors and and um, maybe have some people who are concerned about answering the door? Yeah, that's that's the you know the major concern. In addition to the the work of the enumerators, a lot of the uh, kind of preparation work on on outreach and promotion and so forth involves the Census Bureau, but a lot of other non-census uh, um, volunteers and staff with other entities. So we have a we had a statewide complete count committee, but then local communities and organizations could organize complete count committees, as well as you know a variety of different uh, nonprofit groups and faith-based groups, really focusing attention on getting the word out, uh, and then working with the Census Bureau. And they actually have ha have staff that have been mobilized for the past couple of years that were called partnership specialists uh, to do the type of outreach in those communities, just like what you mentioned. And then we are also able, uh, both the Census Bureau as well as anybody else in the public, to look at the response rates for counties and for cities to try to figure out where are the places that we need to give more attention. And the types of uh, challenges that you identified are of, of concern. A lot of people don't realize that, that Mississippi, we are a major, majority rural state in terms of where people live. And that's based on a variety of different definitions of how we think about rural. And so uh, being out in those, those less densely populated areas uh, is really critical. And then, uh, and then also, as we mentioned, with the pandemic, it's harder to go out and do the kind of face-to-face -face engagement that builds trust and really gets those local voices, local trusted voices, uh, to say, hey, participating in the census is important. And so that really is our concern, is, is those types of places. We'll continue our discussion about the census in just a bit. Another quiz. How do most people in the U.S. get to work? Is it a car, by foot, or a bus? We'll have the answer next. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. 
We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find in legal terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website at legalterms.mpbonline.org. Your old car is kind of like that hairstyle you had in high school. Really cool back in the day. But that old car is still cool when you donate it to MPB Think Radio. Go to mpbonline.org for details. Then sit back and enjoy the ride. Now that's cool. Monday Talks is MPB Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. Before the break, we had another census quiz. This one asks, how do most people in the U.S. get to work? Is it a car, by foot, or a bus? Ryder, we're going to give you first shot on that one. Ooh, uh... Car. All right. Nancy, your guess is? Well, I'm going to have to go with car because that's my experience. But, you know, people in the city go on foot, but I'll stick with car. You're both right, and it is a whopping 85.4% of Americans travel to work by car, either alone or in a carpool. Although, I, good point, Nancy. I think in some of our urban areas, uh, maybe on foot or public transit, uh, or at least before the pandemic, probably would have been a significant uh, uh, amount. Uh, we're going to dig. Yeah, does, does that include the people who commute just by going on foot, like to another room in their house? <laughs> well, again, that might we might have to adjust uh, that uh, during the, the the current climate. We talked about working from home a couple of weeks ago on the show, and that is increasing. Kevin, so I forgot to say point. this was from the uh, information was from a 2016 uh, school <laughs> census that was online. That uh, we'll have the link to it for everyone to play along with on the podcast. All right, uh, we'll dive back into the census in just a minute. But first, we've got an email question here. Uh, for Ryder, this was based, I think, on something from last week's show, uh, but it said, the, heard that you're only taxed when selling property for gain made. How are you taxed for money paid for right-of-way paid from gas company for a pipeline? It's based on acreage uh, and comparable sales of land in the area. What is? What if your property value is decreased? Is it hard to prove? Um, so I, this is it's a little bit of a complicated question, but I, you know, I do have some general concepts and some specific guidance off of the IRS website. So if this is if we're talking about you know your primary home where you live, your primary home and land where you live, um, then we're talking about uh, being taxed when you sell that home. Um, and what a selling a right-of-way does is it is an adjustment to the basis of your home. So say you bought a home and land for $100,000 and you sold right-of-way for $10,000. That would adjust your basis down by $10,000. So that would mean that it's not a taxable transaction right then, there, that day. That would mean that it just goes into the calculation when you sell your home, say, for 150 in the future. Instead of saying I paid 100,000 for it, you would say, well, my basis is is 90,000. Um, that being said, again, if this is a primary home, the uh, tax code does have a maximum exclusion of a quarter million or $500,000 worth of gains. 
Um, so, I mean, you know, obviously, unless you're selling, you know, large, expensive right-of-ways, um, then it's not necessarily going to ha have a huge impact. But, but that the the taxation of that comes at the point when you sell it. And they did note, what if your property value is decreased? I'm not a hundred percent sure what they mean by that, but my guess is maybe they're saying. If the if the presence of the pipeline, the present, and, and you know this goes for all sort of utility lines, utility rights of way, um, also road rights of way, all sorts of rights of way uh, can be sold. Um, but say you have a utility line on your property, and you think, oh, that's decreased the market value of my home. Um, you know that only takes into effect that on, that that really only matters for when you're selling your home. That's not necessarily a tax issue. That just means you can't sell it for as much. Um, so that would, you know, say it lowered your basis $10,000. We'll say it also lowered the market value $10,000. Then that would be a perfectly cancel it out uh, effect on the taxation. Uh, I hope that answers what they're looking for, but it, it's it, it affects the cost, the basis of, of their property, not not their current year's income. Very good. And a reminder, money at mpbonline.org is our email address. You can certainly do that, uh, use that during a program, during the show. Uh, but if you have a question that comes up during the week, uh, you can email us at any time, and we'll try to get uh, the information to Nancy and Ryder and either give you a reply back or use the uh, question on the air. Uh, we've got a caller on the line. Let's say good morning to Bill in Jackson. Bill, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Oh, thanks for taking my call. I work with an organization called the Mississippi Immigrant Rights Alliance, and we partner. We have partnered with the Census Bureau to try to get a com complete count in the um, Latino community. And we have two problems. One is not enough language-appropriate um, enumerators, and then the second is the effect of the raid that took place this past August uh, that's really created a, a climate of fear uh, in the Latino com community, particularly in like Leake County and Scott County and Rankin County and so on, where people are not responding. And we have had meetings prior to the raids and prior to the COVID. Uh, we had uh, uh, meetings with scores of people that uh, we were trying to persuade to uh, participate in the census. And we think it's very important that we consider the Latino community and get uh, language-appropriate people in, but also the fear that has been created. A lot of the enumerators are going to be knocking on doors and not get an answer because the fear of responding to uh, what they perceive as a government agent. Uh, thanks for your comments, Bill, and we appreciate your efforts and your group's efforts to uh, try to get those people counted in the census. Uh, Dr. Green, do you have any uh, response to, to Bill's comments? Yeah, I certainly uh, uh, am familiar with the, the work that the organization has done and, and, and many others. Um, you know, within the state and certainly of uh, concern across the country. And this comes back to that trust concern that I mentioned when we were talking about challenges with the census. And, uh, and so there's, you know, there's kind of in general uh, concerns over distrust, uh, but then also for specific populations in, in, in terms of their demographic characteristics or the location. And so I think this is something that, that we have to be very sensitive to. Um, 
one of the things that that is possible and i'm sure that that the group has already done but for for other listeners to know that with the partnership specialists there's opportunities to uh, tailor messaging and really focus on how to how to collaborate to uh, to be able to build that trust I think also this is an opportunity for working with other types of organizations that serve these populations and that uh, also includes faith-based organizations and, uh, and so that's another outlet for people to be able to learn more and, uh, and also feel a sense of trust through local leaders within the faith community uh, about the census and, uh, and also to be able to distribute materials to those populations. Um, but I, I think this is a perfect example of where uh, being able to tailor the message and do, do the outreach through uh, local organizations is critical, that it's not just uh, the Census Bureau that, that we rely on, but actually do it uh, in participation, do it in collaboration. Again, Bill, thanks for your call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Dr. John Green from the Center for Population Studies at the University of Mississippi and learning how our personal finances could be impacted by Mississippians filling out the 2020 census. If you didn't go online to get counted, you can give them a call until the end of next month, September. The number is one 330 2020. It's 1-844-330-2020. So, Dr. Green, what are some of the programs for kids that make use of census data to distribute their funds? Well, this is this is one of the areas that I think is is uh, not only really important and obviously of concern to, to so many of us, um, but, uh, but that also is a challenge because uh, children, young children especially, are one of the demographic groups most likely to be undercounted. And there's a variety of reasons for that that, that we could go into. Uh, but so there's, there's so much in terms of education and childcare and other related programs for the needs of children that make use of census data. And then on the flip side, we know that children are the most likely to be undercounted. And so this is a really important area of, of work to, uh, to give attention to. As has already been mentioned, uh, all types of educational uh, programming uh, for grants to uh, educational agencies, uh, also things related to um, uh, teacher improvement and those sort of things. Also, uh, when we think about special education, uh, that census data are particularly important. And then a, a program that, that, that serves uh, across Mississippi that's, that's extremely important is the Head Start program for early childhood education. And so these are just a few of the examples that, that are highly influenced um, by uh, census data. And I should mention that, that some partners that we work with, the Kids Count program, uh, both uh, in collaboration with Mississippi State with their Social Science Research Center and the Children's Foundation of Mississippi uh, have given particular attention to, to the funds that are tied uh, to census data that impact children and also then what's at stake uh, for Mississippi's children. And through their uh, Kids Count program this year uh, and, and over the past couple of years have given a lot of attention to that. Uh, so you mentioned that kids tend to get undercounted. Uh, tell us why that is. Well, there's a, there's a, a, a few kind of important reasons and, and certainly many others. But uh, one is that there often is confusion about how do you count uh, children. 
And, uh, but within the census uh, itself, as well as on, on the website, provides more information about this if, there, if there's confusion. But also children that, uh, that have moved, uh, you know, that are in households that have, that have moved, as I mentioned earlier, that challenge. And then also children that are living in, in uh, situations where they go between parents or go between different family members. Uh, say, for example, uh, if, the, if the parents are divorced, um, that it's un, you know, sometimes it's unclear on who, who's counting uh, the child. And so those are some of the uh, concerns re related to the counting of children. And then, of course, when we overlap that with some of the concerns we mentioned before, high poverty, more isolated areas, uh, that, that these kind of challenges can compound uh, one another. Uh, something that you've mentioned a couple of times, quick follow-up on, and that is that idea of people that are moving around. How, how does the Census Bureau know where to initially send? Uh, um, I, like I said, I think I got a little thing in the mail that said, hey, do this, and then I went online. So how do they know what my address is, and how do they try to track down someone if I've moved a couple of times in the last 10 years? Well, that's an, that's an essential question because the census is uh, really address-based, so it's location-based. And, and so the idea is that, uh, that the letters uh, and other materials are sent uh, to households based on their address. Uh, also, there's counting through the census that takes place in what we call group quarters, such as dormitories and long-term care facilities, those, those types of uh, facilities. And, uh, but they're, they're address-based. And so the, the Census Bureau uses what's called a master address file that's updated from a variety, just a long list of, of different sources, and, uh, and then is updated uh, to know where to send those to. And then there's also canvassing, uh, where census staff have already gone out prior uh, to, you know, to make sure that we have a sense of where uh, different housing units and apartment complexes and those sort of things uh, are. And so it's a pretty massive effort, not just from the Census Bureau itself, but partners uh, across all of the states. Our center has participated in that. Um, but where the challenge comes in for people who, who might have moved is whether or not they received that letter uh, during that time period in which in which it's been sent. Uh, another example would be people that have you know multiple homes. Um, and so you know the idea that uh, that a letter has been sent to all of these locations, then the question is, did it get into the hands uh, of the person who should be filling it out or responding online? We'll continue talking about the census after a quick break. Our last census quiz for the hour, how many bedrooms would you find in an average U.S. home? Two, three, or four? We'll have that for you next. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio.
on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Thanks for listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. Before the break, we had our last census quiz asking how many bedrooms the average U.S. home has. Is it two, three, or four? And the answer is three. So I think I have an average home. They're not real large bedrooms, but I do have three in my house. So that uh, makes me right there in the in the mean. Uh, John Green, Ph.D. and professor at the University of Mississippi with the Center for Population Studies, has been our guest this hour. And he's been telling us how the census affects your personal finances. If you've not been counted yet, Mississippi needs you to either speak with a census worker who will come to your door, or better yet, you can save them a trip and give the census a call. The number to call is 1-844-330-2020. The number again, it's 1-844-330-2020. We mentioned earlier in this show that uh, several hundred uh, federal programs use census data uh, to determine how they spend their money, and Dr. Green has been helping us dive deeper into that, talking about some of the programs uh, that do use census data. Uh, Dr. Green, what about uh, programs that uh, help uh, families? Yeah, this is uh, one of the places where we see census data having a particular impact on people's uh, you know, direct family finances, like you mentioned. Uh, this includes temporary assistance for, for needy families, so which is a, a critical program for people living in poverty. And also the Children's Health Insurance Program uh, is another uh, great example um, that census data are used based to determine the allocation of dollars, you know, what's going to be needed and uh, and then how those would be uh, distributed. And this is also a place where some of those other census data products that we mentioned earlier are really important. So, for example, the American Community Survey and the Current Population Survey, which are both conducted by the Census Bureau as well, uh, give us, for example, our official uh, poverty rates. And so they help us to uh, monitor and understand what are those poverty rates combined with the census population counts, give a, give a, a good basis for how those types of funds uh, need to be spent. Uh, and then you can also think about what's affecting families. You know, as mentioned earlier, that businesses use census data, and that's absolutely right. There are so many different kind of private business uh, applications in which the, you know, the use of census data for planning. And the same happens with philanthropy and nonprofit organizations, other types of uh, organizations that are helping needy families that use census data. Also, I see on the list of some of the programs affecting families, unemployment insurance. So, again, this uh, it's an example of how this really does boil down to us personally. We know that's been a big deal. Uh, so many Americans lost their job from the pandemic. Uh, so that's just another uh, program that uses some of this data and, and, and again, underscores why it is so important uh, to try to make sure that you be counted and that uh, Mississippi gets an accurate representation uh, when it comes to uh, to census data. So we've mentioned that the census happens every 10 years, and 
you've also mentioned that uh, in the meantime, in the between the time, uh, there are some of these other accounts. Uh, so is that what keeps the kind of the Census Bureau busy between the big ones? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Decennial census is, is the biggest thing that happens, but some of these other uh, surveys that we mentioned, uh, including American Community Survey, Current Population Survey, also the economic census, uh, the census of businesses, uh, that's that's useful for businesses and government uh, to really see what's happening in terms of business development. And, uh, and then we should also mention data dissemination. You know, these, these, uh, these data sources, they're the public's data. They belong to uh, the American people. And so uh, there's a lot of emphasis both within the Census Bureau staff and partners like our center to help them make those data available in terms of analysis and public distribution. Uh, and doing so in such a way that protects everyone's confidentiality and privacy, but provides aggregate data that then can be used in all the ways that we've discussed and, and getting that out to the users. Uh, Dr. Green, got one minute left, so maybe if you could just quickly touch on a couple of uh, programs that make use of census data when it comes to food. Absolutely. You know, we, we talked about with unemployment insurance being so critical and health services with the pandemic, food assistance has really demonstrated this way as well. If we think about the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, uh, our, our uh, allocations are based on census data. Also, think about uh, the Support Program for Women, Infants, and Children, or WIC. Uh, and then also our school breakfast and our school lunch programs uh, that they have to utilize, uh, allocate, al allocate dollars on the basis of census accounts. And so when we think about the food assistance and, and nutrition kind of safety net within our country, it's absolutely critical to have accurate census data. Dr. Green, you did a great job today. Thank you so much for helping us uh, understand a little bit better why it's so important to uh, complete the, the census. That is going to wrap us up for today. Money Talks is a production of MPB Think Radio, funded in part by generous financial support from you, our listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to moneytalks.mpbonline.org or just listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks on your favorite podcasting app. Our show is produced by Liz Gill, and our call screener today was Lisa Lancaster. So for Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, Ryder Taft, and our guest, Dr. John Green, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks, heard only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from Trustmark, offering My Trustmark online and mobile banking services to help monitor spending, pay bills, deposit checks, transfer money, and more. Anytime, anywhere. More information at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 